Excellent. So today we're in Genesis chapter 11 and we're starting from the first verse. We're looking at the first nine verses, which is the account of the Tower of Babel. Um, So if you would be able to turn there for me, please. If you don't have a Bible, could you just put your hand up? We'll get a Bible to you. Second week in a row. Everybody's got a Bible. Praise God for that. Amen. Okay. So uh, thank you, Nick, for that reading. Um, Now, let me just pray quickly because I think we haven't started off on the right foot with technology and we just pray that the Lord would be with us as we go through God's word this morning. So, Father, we just, we just pray, we give this morning to you. We thank you so much for your word. Lord, your word is, is inerrant. Your word is infallible. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts this morning to receive your word. We pray that you would fill us and fill this space with your Holy Spirit so that we could understand what the text is trying to say to us this morning. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you would give us the wisdom and discernment as we apply the word to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So, yeah, we're going to start off on verse 1, because I think verse 1 gives us the context of this passage, um, and it will give us an introduction into the text. So verse 1 says, Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now, obviously, if you were here last week, you listened to Genesis chapter 10, Paul took us through the descendants of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And in doing so, he pointed us to a literary pattern. That after listing the descendants of each of the three sons, Moses, who was the, who was the author, then rounds off the genealogy with the phrasing, these are the sons of Shem, Ham and Japheth, by their clans, their languages their lands and their nations. We see this repetition happen in verse 5, verse 20 and verse 31. Verse 31 being two verses before our verse today um, in Genesis chapter 11. And so you might be thinking, well, what's going on here? How come all of a sudden we've got one people group? Verse 1 says, now the whole earth had one language in the same words. And I want us to be clear, Moses when he was writing this, didn't write it with chapters and verses like we have in our Bibles today. It's not like he wrote chapter uh, 11 and went on holiday and then forgot what he wrote in chapter 10. No, this is a literary arrangement that Moses uses, and he uses it in other parts of Genesis too. What he does is he gives us the bigger picture, and then he homes in to give us the detail. So last week, we saw that bigger picture. We saw that God's people spread that they had different languages and nations and different lands. And we might have thought, well, this was all in accordance to God's word, God's command to go out and multiply. And we might have thought, well, everything's making sense, everything adds up. However, what chapter 11 does is it it shocks us into revealing the truth, that before mankind spread, they didn't want to obey God's command. In fact, they were doing the exact opposite What they wanted to do was they wanted to cluster together. They wanted to build a city and they wanted to rebel against God's commands. And so by using verse one by way of introduction, we're then starting to touch upon the main themes of today's sermon. And I have three points for us this morning that I want us to concentrate on. And they're headed as follows. 
First of all, we're going to have mankind's rebellion. And then we're going to look at God's response. And then we're going to look at God's glory. So specifically breaking that down, we're going to look at mankind's rebellion in verses 1 to 4. God's response to mankind's rebellion in verses six to nine, uh, 5 to 9, which will then ultimately lead to God's glory. And for God's glory, we're going to look to Christ and that wonderful picture of Christ's glory later on in the biblical narrative. So let's begin with our passage for today, and we're looking at mankind's rebellion. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So here we have the crux of mankind's rebellion. In the previous chapters, God repeatedly tells them to multiply and spread. But here, what do we see them do? They settle. And they settle in the plains of Shinar. Now, the plains of Shinar are located in the Fertile Crescent. It's a large, low-lying, fertile expanse that had the rivers Tigris and Euphrates running through it. Surrounding the plains to the north and to the east were the mountain ranges where Noah has Noah's Ark had landed, and to the south we have a large desert expanse. To the west of the plains we have another mountain range, which separated the plains of Shinar from the eventual resting place of the Israelites. So effectively, the plains of Shinar were hemmed in on all four sides, three sides by a mountain and one side by a desert. And so the people saw this plain and they thought, this is the perfect place for us to dwell, for us to cluster. And it really gives us an insight into the mindset of mankind during this time. For example, this location shows that they trusted God's promise that he made to Noah. They trusted that God would never destroy them in in a flood again, because if if they didn't, they would have maintained their location up on the mountaintops, up on the high ground. Instead, they chose this low-flying floodplain. And we know they considered this their final resting place because the large, luscious expanse was the perfect place to contain the whole earth. Notice in in your Bibles in verse 1, it says here that the whole earth was gathered here. We're not just talking about Noah and his sons anymore. And as an aside, I think this is probably the location where Noah became a man of the soil. Don't forget he's still alive at this point. I can't imagine there was much soil on the snow-capped mountain range where Noah had just travelled from. And by irrigating the rivers and making use of the lush soil of the plains of Shinar, these were a perfect place for him to grow vineyards in which he could then start drinking heavily from. This location shows their pride and audacity as well. The plain was so low and fertile that there wasn't even stones from the mountains to make buildings. Instead, they had to bake their own bricks from hardened clay and use bitumen, which is the sticky tar found in tar pits, as mortar. And you might be wondering, well, why is that prideful and audacious? Well, think about it. They chose the lowest place possible on the marshiest land 
using the least ideal materials that they could find in order to make a tower that was going to reach to the heavens. It's kind of like, as I look here at this Jenga tower, I'm kind of reminded of man's attempt to make a tower. However, this pride was just the beginning of their rebellion. As they settled there and became comfortable, we see more clearly the state of their mindset. In verse 3, it says, Come, let us make bricks. And then they say in verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city. Let's make a name for ourselves. They were of one mind and one heart. And they had one mission, to settle down and to make a name for themselves. But why did they want to settle down? Why did they want to make a name for ourselves? Well, verse 4 tells us, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. They had a fear that if they didn't build a tower with its top in the heavens, they would be dispersed from Shinar, thereby removing their security and comfort. And this throws up a whole host of questions like, why is dispersing such a bad thing? Why did they trust God on one hand not to destroy them, And yet, on the other hand, they went against his commands to go and spread. But why did they build this tower? Well, looking at the tower itself will give us a clue. See, the tower that they made was an ancient construction called a ziggurat. It was an ancient pyramid-like building with a shrine at the top. Remains of the ziggurat at Babylon and other sites have been excavated. On each brick were the names of the people. Hence, one possible reason for verse 3, let's make a name for ourselves. The pyramid was constructed with its base planted in the earth and its peak reaching the sky. And in ancient Mesopotamia, these structures were considered the meeting point of heaven and earth. Because of this, people viewed the man-made tower at Babel as the place of God's divine residency and activity. The top of the tower wasn't a place that people wanted to go to. Rather, it was a place that he considered so holy that they believed that God dwelt there. To them, the top of the tower was a sacred space. A misconception with the account of Babel often is that people went, built the tower to dethrone God, to be bigger than God. And whilst Babel and Babylon will eventually become a metaphor for man's sinfulness and rebellion, we must consider the ancient objective of these people. Mankind was trying to bring God to them. And understanding this helps us realise what mankind was trying to do. They were trying to establish a sacred space, a place for God to dwell amongst his people like he once did in the Garden of Eden. Now You might be thinking, well, what's wrong with building a tower in order to bring God down to earth? Surely that's a noble task. However, let's not forget what the text said. It said they did this with the wrong heart. They did it not for the glory of God, but they did it for the glory of man. Let's make a name for ourselves. God has been clear in his command to go and multiply and disperse. And if you think about it, mankind was effectively trying to manufacture and force God to dwell amongst themselves on their terms, in their city and in their land. They were actively trying to stop God from dispersing them according to God's plan. Mankind wanted God to dwell with them in comfort and safety, whilst God already had a plan for how he was going to dwell amongst his people. And it wasn't on top of a pyramid on the plains of Shinar, 
as we'll see later on. So that's the rebellion of mankind in this text. And we're now going to look at mankind's intentions. Uh, Yeah, and sorry, we've already looked at mankind's intentions. We've looked at the rebellion. We've looked at how they've settled and they've tried to force God on their terms. Now we're going to look at God's response. How does God respond to man's sinful pride? So let's just turn to verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I really love this response from God. And to begin with, I particularly love verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. Of course, we know that God doesn't have to come down to, and investigate what's going on in his universe. He's God. He's everywhere. The language here is dramatising God's intervention. Figuratively speaking, the tower is so far from being in heaven that God can't even see it from heaven. So he had to come down to mankind. And I love what, well, as I was talking to this with my wife, who's not in the room anymore, but I was talking to her about this last night, about this idea of God coming down. And she said, oh, it's kind of like how we come down to children. And actually, it kind of makes sense, because in the, in the next verse, um, he calls them the children of man. The children of man. And this is the name saved for those who have inherited the same rebellious nature of Adam. Those who, like Adam in chapter 3 of Genesis, were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. Those who had lost communion with God. Those who had lost that sacred space. They were a prideful people. And the danger was that they had one mind. They're described here in verse 6 as one people. Verse 6 tells us, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. The people were so bent on reaching God their own way, with the wrong intentions, that nothing they propose to do now will be impossible for them. If they continue as one people, with one mind and one heart, how long before they manufacture other ways to exalt themselves and force God to them? How long would it be before they offer human sacrifices on top of that pyramid? How long before they start burning their children alive? These are all practices that the Canaanites will end up doing. Because God says, nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. God knew the evil that mankind is capable of in the name of God. And he knew that misplaced worship and sinful rebellion would lead them to do evil things. And we'll see that through the horrific acts of mankind, especially through the Canaanites. So God devised a way to split up mankind, 
thereby, thereby eliminating the spread of human sinfulness. Verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Mankind's come, let us make a name for ourselves was responded by God's come, let us go down. Here, God is talking as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He's talking just as he did in Genesis chapter one, when God said, come, let us make man in our own image. Now he's saying, come, let us confuse their language. And this is the power of God. He can do anything he likes. He can create the universe with a word. So he can create different languages amongst mankind. And notice when God speaks as one, creation happens. When mankind speaks as one, rebellion and evil happens. It was never God's intention for sinful man to be as one. So the Lord dispersed them there over the face of the earth and they left off building the city. I mean, how about that for the mercy of God? In Genesis 6, when God looks at mankind and he sees the nature of their heart, that their heart was only evil continually, God destroyed them through a flood. We contrast that to now, when God realises that there is no depth to the evil that they were proposed to do, this time he confuses them and scatters them. And it's at this point that we're able to marry up our passage to last week's text in Genesis chapter 10, where Paul told us of the dispersing of Shem, Ham and Japheth, according to their clans, their languages, their lands and nations. As we know, some will go on enlarging themselves across the world, forgetting God, becoming evil in their religious practices, some serving other gods, and some, as we'll see in next week's chapter, will be chosen by God to be the people of God. Those who will eventually regain that communion with God, not on their terms or through their strength, but it will be God's choosing. He will choose his people and he will dwell through and amongst them re-establishing that sacred space that has been lost since the Garden of Eden, verse 9. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. To the people who continued to reside in Babel, the city would eventually become known as Babylon. And to them, the people of Babylon, the name Babel meant the gate of God, Again, further cementing this idea that the city's main function was to be a gateway to God, for God to dwell amongst his people, a city of sacred space. However, despite their best attempts to manufacture this God-mankind relationship, the city will forever be known to us as, as Babel, which in Hebrew sounds like Balal or Baval, which means to confuse. Because of God's judgment, the gate of God's has become the doorway to confusion. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now that we've come to the end of our passage today, <clears throat> I want us just to discover the magnitude of Babel and Babylon in the biblical narrative. We need to consider God, how God's response in Genesis 11 ends up glorifying himself. 
How does the creation of nations, races and languages serve God's bigger plan? Why didn't God choose to dwell on the plains of Shinar? And it's here we'll be looking at our final point for today, God's glory. And I want us to consider how Jesus plays into this. Because as we know, through Jesus, God does come down to earth. He does dwell amongst mankind. And he dwells as God in the flesh, the word incarnate. And yet, even this wasn't God's final plan. Because it wasn't God's glory to dwell amongst sinful mankind. It's God's glory to dwell amongst his chosen, righteous, redeemed people. Before Jesus was arrested and eventually crucified, Jesus prayed to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. The prayer is found in John uh, chapter 17, and it's called the High Priestly Prayer. Here, Jesus is praying to God the Father before his death. And what I want you to notice is that Jesus is praying for his people. That through his people, they would become one in a reversal of what we saw in the account of Babel. Jesus knows that God's perfect plan is on the horizon. And Jesus knew it wouldn't be long before God would bring about a oneness in his people. A oneness that transcends cultural, racial and language barriers that the rest of the world will be limited to. Here's a few verses from the priestly prayer in John chapter 17. And if you get a chance, I'd, I'd love you to read this yourself. So I might ask a question about it in this week's house groups. But if, if, we, if you just let me read a second from John chapter 17 and verse 9. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then a little bit further down in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, who you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This was always God's desire, to dwell amongst his people, to establish a sacred space with his people, a people that he loves. As we know, Jesus prays this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's then arrested and crucified. And then something incredible happens. When Jesus is resurrected, he pours out his spirit so that the high priestly prayer would be complete. And we see this at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the upper room and tongues of fire rest upon them. And suddenly this oneness that Jesus had been praying for in Gethsemane is starting to happen. And we read in Acts chapter 2 and from verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them in our own, tang- in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? What this meant was that via Jesus' prayer through the Holy Spirit, God had reversed the confusion he caused at Babel. It's almost as if the Trinity has come together and said, come, let us make our people one again. And all of a sudden, God's people are one again. They're no longer affected by the division of language or race. They've started to become one people on earth, just as Jesus had prayed in Gethsemane. Listen to this count of the early church in Acts um, chapter 2 from verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favour with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Just compare that beautiful vision of the early church and compare that to hearts of mankind at the Tower of Babel. In Babel, they were one language, they were one people, but they had one evil heart. However, the, holy, the early church were one people through the Holy Spirit praising God and having favour with all people, correct worship and correct adoration. They weren't a doorway of confusion as, the, as mankind in Genesis 11 was, but they were a doorway to God. And God added to their number day by day those who were being saved, just as Jesus had prayed. And you see, Jesus knew this would happen. Jesus knew that through the power of the Holy Spirit, God's glory would lay claim of every language group and every language and every people group jesus says in matthew 28 18 that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me go therefore and make disciples of all nations disciples were able to do this because the holy spirit unites believers as one if we belong to christ then we become the sacred space that mankind in genesis 11 was trying to manufacture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Brothers and sisters, we glorify God in our bodies. We glorify him in our diversity and in our languages and in our nations. That picture there of people coming together from our church, from different nations, as they were building the Jenga Tower. How beautiful is that? We really do glorify God as we come together, filled with God's spirit, and we come united as one. We transcend the cultural, racial, and language barriers that our world is limited to, because we are God's glory. Just listen to those wonderful visions that I'm about to read in uh, John, uh, in Revelation, the the visions that John has. 
And I want you to notice the emphasis of God's diverse people in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. And then this beautiful verse, a few chapters later, in chapter 7 and verse 9, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and carrying, crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Brothers and sisters, every tribe, Every nation, all people groups, all languages brought together through God's Holy Spirit in a complete reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. And then this big moment in, Genesis, in Revelation 21, and this is my, my final one, this is the fulfilment of God's wonderful plan. This is God's true plan of how he wants to dwell amongst his people. Not a measly clay-built tower on the plains of Shinar, but God's glory in the new heavens and the new earth. Just listen to the beginning of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, don't you long for that day? That day where every tear will be gone. Death shall be no more. No crying, no pain. If you long for this, if you long to dwell with God, then this is only possible through Jesus Christ and through his Holy Spirit. I'm about to pray, but before I do, I can't end this sermon without telling you the fate of Babylon. And I'm sorry to bring a downer here, but it's here in Revelation where we see the destruction of Babylon, a city that represents mankind who reject and rebel against God. Because we should be clear, if you don't belong to Jesus, if you don't accept Jesus through faith, the Holy Spirit does not dwell within you, then you do not belong to Jesus. If you do not belong to Jesus, then you belong to this world. As Jesus says twice in the Gospel of John, it's Satan who is the ruler of this world. In Revelation, this is what chapters 17 to 19 are all about, the final demise of Satan and the confused world. And in these chapters, the world, is represent, um, yeah, the world and the city that Satan dwells in is represented as a prostitute city. 
And guess what the city is called? It's called Babylon. This is a world which we live in today. It's a confused, rebellious world. Just listen to the beginning of, of chapter 18 here. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven. Notice that, that the tower didn't reach high as heaven, but the sins reached as high as heaven. And God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as, her, as she herself has paid back to others and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she's mixed. As she glorified herself, she glorified herself and not God, and lived in luxury. So give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judged her. Ladies and gentlemen, this is my final plea. Don't be of this world. We live in a Babylon world. If you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've not been baptised and received his spirit, and you cannot be part of the new heavens and the new earth. You'll remain in this world. And my plea is that you would come out of this world, lest you take parts in the sins of Babylon, lest you share the plagues of this world, lest you're condemned with this world. Let's pray. Father God, this passage today is so full of your richness and depth and so many layers to your word. I feel, Lord, that we've really only just scratched the surface today. But Father, I pray for those listening today. I pray that we would all feel as brothers and sisters in Christ that unparalleled joy at the thought of your presence dwelling amongst us in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, I pray also for those who do not yet know you because they do not have the spirit of God yet within them. Father, I pray, would you open the hearts of anyone listening to this message who needs their sins forgiven? Would you save them from their sins, Lord? Would you dwell with them? Would you dwell with us? Father, I pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.